Amen. All right. Um, if, if you would, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts 12. Uh, if not, we should have the slides on the screen. But I want to thank Pastors Michael and Gary for allowing me to preach on the doctrine of the millennium for the next three and a half hours. Uh, and obviously, I'm, I'm totally kidding. It's just going to be three hours. So, um, in all seriousness, we're going to continue in Acts, picking back up in chapter 12. Uh, we're going to cover the entire chapter by the end of the message, but we're not going to go in order. It's going to come in chunks. So um, as we read, take notice of the primary theme for this passage, and that is God is sovereign in death and deliverance. Uh, no matter what efforts God's enemies make to thwart his gospel up to and including death, Nothing will stop God's victorious progress in the world. His truth marches on, his kingdom continues to expand, and the glory of God will spread across the entire globe as the waters that cover the sea. And in the midst of this global gospel growth, and in particular for us here in Medina, our response is to always cast our eyes Godward, lift our voices in dependent prayer, and fully trust his plans whether his plans results in our death or our deliverance. So let's, let's dig in. Uh, I want us to look at the passage from three different perspectives or three different lenses, if you will. Uh, each perspective, we're going we're to apply what we extract from that to our lives today. Remember that God's word to them back then is still God's word to us today, so we want this to be applicable. Um, so first, we're going to cover from the passage Herod's perspective, and then link that to our government's perspective today with the administration here in America. Uh, then we will look at the apostles' perspective, and then link that to our perspective today. And finally, we'll look at God's perspective then, and God's perspective now. So let's begin in verse 1, if we have the first four verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers, soldiers, to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So notice the first words of our passage about that time. This gives us the time frame, obviously. And we can, this connects back to what Pastor Michael preached on last week in chapter 11, particularly verses 27 through 30. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, we learned there was a famine in that time, and we know that Jesus prophesied that there would be famines in the last days. Peter in Acts chapter 2 identifies them as having been in the last days. Uh, furthermore, Jesus also prophesied of persecution of the church in the last days. And we see that in chapter 4 with the beating of the apostles. We see that in chapter 7 with the death of Stephen. And now we see with the death of James, one of the eminent prominent apostles of the church. Now, this comes as no surprise. Uh, Jesus actually prophesied about the death of James very specifically. 
in Mark 10, Jesus and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Jesus said to them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they, say, they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So Jesus already told James that he would die a death of persecution at the hands of sinners. So clearly, famine, death, not taking God by surprise. This is prophecy. It's playing out in history. So over the last few chapters, we've seen relative peace with uh, somewhat of an expansion of the kingdom. Lots of people are being saved, especially Gentile converts. And so they're on a mountaintop, and they're happy, and they're helping each other, and now they face the valley of the shadow of death once again at the hand of Herod. But will this thwart God's plan for the gospel spreading across the globe? Will Herod's efforts snuff out the kingdom candle? That's, that's the question we have to deal with right now. So according to Herod in this passage, he was going to crush this group of Christian rebels. They were opposed to his ideologies and his plans, and they served his political advantage to kill them, and he considered this a slam dunk to execute James and to imprison Peter, as we'll see. Now that we know the time frame and what the church was facing, let's begin to put on our first lens, which is Herod's perspective, from his eyes. So first, who is this Herod? Uh, the name Her Herod was a family name that basically meant king or ruler or president. Uh, there, there are, in fact, six Herods in the scripture, and I, I botched that with you the other day, Michael. I didn't realize there were six. I'm not going to touch on three of them, uh, but I do want to touch on the other three. So first, Herod the Great was the king of Judea from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., he was the king who sought to kill baby Jesus. You're going to notice a theme here about Herod. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 2. Second, Herod Antipas, from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., he was the king who beheaded John the Baptist, and he played a role in the crucifixion of Christ. Herod Antipas is the same ones, one that the apostles condemned in chapter 4 when they identified him as one of the people groups who gathered against the Lord and against his anointed. And then lastly, Herod Agrippa is the Herod before us in chapter 12. So we'll, we'll learn about his son in chapters 25 and 26, but right now let's focus on Herod Agrippa I. Uh, Herod's primary job was to keep the peace and quell any potential uprisings because he's under the, the Jews were under Roman occupation. So he was kind of a middleman. He had a kingdom, but it was kind of half of a kingdom. And he did have power, obviously. Uh, but he had to defer to Rome. So Herod Agrippa was friends with the likes of uh, Caligula, uh, Roman, Roman emperors, Tiberius, Claudius, just truly despicable monsters of iniquity who even non-Christians, when they read about them, they acknowledge these were horrible men. And most of them persecuted the church Tiberius was kind of the exception, although it was indirect persecution. So we see that 
Herod's line has a history of persecuting God's children. He's bloodthirsty. Herod wants Christian blood. He wants anybody standing in his way or any political agenda to advance his political agenda to do what he wants. And you know what? He's like rulers today. He vilifies his opposition. He kills and imprisons however many he can as a pure power grab. Like today's Herods, um, he was a people pleaser and he wanted to kill any potential opposition. And just like many people today, it pleased many of the populace at that time to kill those they considered a heretical sect, the way, a title we learn about in chapter 9 that is used to describe Christians. So Herod's line can be traced all the way back to Esau, according to Jewish historian Josephus. Herod was an Edomite. That gives us insight into his bloodline. He was from Esau. And this, this Herod... Goes, his, his bloodline, it goes far back beyond Esau. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. If you're familiar with that story, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. The, the, the seed of the serpent will crush the heel of the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so what this boils down to is essentially the seed of the woman is Jesus and his people. This is the gospel promise, the, the proto-evangeliad, the first gospel given. So the seed of the woman is Jesus and his people, and he, they, collectively, one, one body, will crush the seed of the serpent who is Satan and his people, his, his servants. So Christ at the cross crushed the head of Satan, but remember, Christ's heel was bruised because he died. He was crucified. There was cost. There was injury. But he crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. And so we see in Scripture this theme, or as they call it, a motif, that there is the seed of the serpent and there is the seed of the woman all through Scripture. Every believer is a seed of the woman. Every unbeliever is the seed of the servant. And that goes as well for uh, rulers, for evil, unbelieving rulers. Uh, this is not a new narrative in the New Testament. This goes all the way back. You can see it through all the, the you know, you see the seed of the woman in, in people like uh, Noah and uh, Abraham and Moses and King David and on and on. And it was the world versus Noah. The world was the seed of the serpent. It was Pharaoh versus Abraham. He was the seed of the serpent. Pharaoh was. Pharaoh versus uh, Moses. Goliath versus King David. That, that is the structure that the Scripture presents for believers and unbelievers. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. And so now this seed of the serpent extends all the way to King Herod, who sought to kill the true seed of the woman baby Jesus. And Herod Antipas, who actually killed John the Baptist, now, so let's, let's continue with uh, Herod Agrippa, his killing James. This is the first uh, apostle martyr. And so I just want to make sure, is everybody clear? See the serpent, see the woman, right? Believer, unbeliever. Uh, so now that this Herod has a taste for Christian blood, 
and it pleases the populace, the people at that time, he goes after Peter. And why didn't, why didn't Herod immediately kill Peter? Right there and then, just like James, with the sword, beheading. Well, we have an indication in verse 3, if you'd see. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So Michael Horton gives us three reasons for why Peter's execution was delayed. First, Herod wanted to show how scrupulously he observed the Passover. He wants to appear very religious. Uh, Second, he wanted to wait until the pilgrim crowds went home, fearing a riot. Remember, he had to keep the peace. And third, he wanted to wait until he had the full attention of the Jewish population. So this is a strategic move by imprisoning Peter and doing it at this time. And so look at, the, look at the resources that Herod throws at Peter to ensure he doesn't escape. Four squads of soldiers for one man who preaches, chained to two at a time, and he's dead, sure, he's dead set on making sure that Peter doesn't make it out alive. And so this is Herod's perspective. Herod thinks he is in full control. He thinks he's the king of kings with all power and authority. Look at verses 18 through 19 with me. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So once Peter is delivered, Herod even puts his own guards to death. And this is an example at that time where if you lost your prisoner, uh, you would receive the same punishment they were going to receive. This is why the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 is, what, should I, what must I do to be saved? I'm going to die here. This is why he's petrified. That was Roman law. But Herod's arrogance, it escalates far beyond bloodshed and imprisoning. Look at verses 20 through 22. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country, depend, their country depended on the king's, uh, the king's co- county for, or country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Do you see that? They call him God, and he absorbs it, and he acknowledges it. Uh, Josephus comments that, uh, the Jewish historian that jo- uh, Herod was wearing a silver outfit and the sun would reflect off it and make him look to be somewhat of a deity. And so the people acknowledge that because they're dependent on him for food. And he's soaking in the praises of the people, much like the administration today. So let's stop here with wi- eyes wide open on that point and, and recognize that the seed of the serpent in evil leadership is present with us today. This is the application for us. We have leaders who are pushing for persecuting Christians and Christian values. Now, some of it is indirect, and we have have it pretty good here in America, don't we? Even now, with the way things are. Let's, let's, Let's not fool ourselves. But some of it is flagrant. Abortion is being pushed. It is a huge agenda. The murder of babies, of babies. Homosexuality is rampant. They say something like 40 to 60% of middle schoolers identify as LGBTQIA, right? Force shut down so we can't worship is what they did in 2020. They're suppressing free speech. They're trying to revoke the Second Amendment, our God-given right, 
and the debacle in Afghanistan. That is what the administration, the Herod today, is doing. We are, in a sense, right now in Acts chapter 29, and we're experiencing ripple effects from that line of the seed of the serpent. So we see ourselves in the continuation of the story. You're in it, and I'm in it. God, God forbid we're the seed of the serpent. We need to realize this is a spiritual battle, and we as believers are the seed of the woman. <laughs> this is a war, guys. The seed of the serpent is, is waging war on us. So let's come back to Herod to wrap up his ending, which we can all assume, but let's move on to the apostles' perspective for now. As already mentioned, James, one of the apostles, has been killed, and Peter, one of the chief apostles, is hanging by a thread in prison, hours away from execution. So what's the disciples' response? What are the apostles to do? Do they despair? Do they give up? Do they fret and worry? As if Peter's release depended on their worry? Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They responded how we ought to respond to these situations. Earnest prayer. They rallied together and they cast their eyes Godward and not inward or outward. They see the situation was out of their control and they lift their voices with confidence to the sovereign Lord. The God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The God of miracles as we've seen in Acts. So how does God respond to their prayer? Let's look at the results of their prayer. Actual results. They pray. God responds. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed in the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along on the street, and immediately the, the angel left him. So here, basically, Peter is delivered. James dies, Peter is delivered. How can James die and Peter be delivered? Was not James a beloved apostle? Did he not spend time with Christ? How could the Lord allow him that he loved so much to die? Now, I'm sure the believers prayed for James to be spared when he was arrested, and yet he was killed. Why does God and his sovereign allow some to die and some to be delivered? We see this so often. Two children are sick. One dies, one is healed. There are two spouses. One dies, the other is restored. The ways of the Lord are certainly mysterious, and I'm not going to be presumptuous to claim I have some great answer. But we have to realize that for the Christian, death is merely the beginning of eternal life. You see, back in the garden, the first gospel declared the serpent, serpent's head would be crushed, but the heel, the seed of the woman, would be bruised or crushed. 
There's collateral. Cain killed Abel, but he merely bruised his heel by killing him. Because though he physically died, Abel was ushered into the very presence of God in the true heavenly tabernacle. So it is with the death of every saint. I'm the quote Nathan Smith, who shared a very uh, helpful insight with me yesterday. The closest thing to hell for the believer is their time on earth. One might go so far as to say, one believer's One believer is delivered from their hell, which is their time on earth, to then begin eternal life with Christ. The other believer is spared to continue God's work before the other believer begins their eternal life with God. Uh, When I was at Brother Don's mother's funeral, I was greatly encouraged at the attitude and the, the, the mindset that they had that she was a believer. She was the seed of the woman, and she... To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It was incredible. Revelation. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. For a Christian, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So here we see God demonstrating his sovereignty in the death of his people. Although unpopular to think, we see that God kills and God makes alive. 1 Samuel 2, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So, believer, your death and my death, which is imminent and going to happen at some point, is already planned because God is sovereign. If you trust Christ You can rest in the timing of God's wisdom for it. So we ought to be wise. Take precautions. Be careful. Eat right. Exercise. All those things. But the day of our death is set. And and we can take comfort in that. Having died in Christ, we will be raised in Christ. So in the case of Peter, some are delivered for their good and his glory. But make no mistake, this This is certainly the result of answered prayer. Peter's deliverance. The angel shines a light, hits Peter. I imagine he kicks him, I don't know. Unshackles him, ushers him out, and automatically opens the gate for him. Along the way, Peter is clueless. He is passive in this process. He is following the lead that God has set. He thinks it's a vision. He's participating, but it's passive. The angel has to give him instructions every step of the way. So to keep on time, because I clearly have too much content, I might breeze over some things and maybe speak faster uh, and then just throw something at me, Pastor Michael or Gary, if if it goes over. Uh, So it, it wasn't until Peter was completely free that he realized he's been delivered. Look at verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people what all the Jewish people were expecting. So this is a picture of salvation, just to touch on this briefly. We were bound, imprisoned, in our sin, helpless, and God, by his sovereign grace, through the Spirit, by the work of the Son, came in and brought us out. There was an exodus. Um, I don't have time to get into it, but in Luke 9, same author of Acts It says here, And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What Jesus did on the cross was an exodus. And there are a lot of parallels to the actual exodus in the book of Exodus. And that's, that's what we have. We have an exodus from our sin, from the tyrannical rule of Satan, from the bondage of our sin. At the cross, the seed of the woman, crucified outside the gates, brings us outside the gates, we are crucified with him, and we are delivered with him spiritually. And so Peter, once again, is physically delivered. So now that Peter is sovereignly delivered, let's, let's see what happens in verses 12 through 17. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, the other James, we'll see in chapter 15, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. The, the result of Peter's deliverance is amazement. It's praise. It's excitement. This servant girl, Rhoda, is so shocked that she forgets about Peter and runs to them. They've been praying for Peter's deliverance. He is delivered, and they don't even believe it. And that's the way it works in this life, right? Oh, that was just a coincidence. God answered my prayer, but that was going to happen anyway. Not so. Not so. You have not because you ask not. And when we ask, we ask with a double mind. So what about us? What is our response to our current predicaments that we talked about with our lives, with the government, with everything, the mess that's going on? Are we despairing? Are we fretting? Perhaps you are about to lose your job. Perhaps you are about to be expelled from a university for whatever reason, is your default mode prayer? Is it cast my eyes Godward or is it fret and worry and anxiety and we turn left and right and everywhere except for to God? Now we need to plan and prepare and take precautions like I said. As Martin Luther says, we should work as if everything depends on us and pray as if everything depends on God because it does. Prayer is these Christians' default response. There are 13 instances, over 13 instances, that I won't go through for lack of time, of the Christians praying about every single scenario in the book of Acts. So let's start doing this. Instead of worrying about our circumstances, let's start praying. There's a lot to be stressed about today. Lose your job if fill in the blank, CRT, you won't get the vaccine. Shut down worship, whatever it is. There's a lot to be worried about. We're carrying burdens, perhaps like Peter, but God's will will prevail, so don't worry, let's pray. So finally, let's look at God's perspective. We've seen Herod, he thinks he's in control. Our administration thinks they're in control. We've seen the apostles, they cast their eyes Godwards. We see ourselves, that's what we ought to do. Now let's look at God's perspective, which is the only perspective that truly matters. We've seen 
already much of God's perspective in this passage. But I'd like to briefly re-review it to make sure we fully understand God's sovereignty in death and deliverance. Um, back to the question of why does God allow one to die and one to live, and does God really plan? If you look back at chapter 4, uh, the greatest evil in all of human history, greatest evil, the crucifixion of the sinless, spotless Son of God. And it says that God predestined it. And he used that for the greatest good in all of human history. So if God can use predestined and use the greatest evil in all of history for the greatest good, can he not do that to our sufferings and trials? He certainly can and he does. But God is not merely sovereign over the death of his saints. So let's pick back up in the story where we left off about Herod to see what his perspective was contradicted by. Verse 22, And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God is sovereign not just over the death of his saints. He's sovereign over the death of his enemies. As we've seen, God kills and God makes alive. This applies to all. He tried to take the glory and the psalmist had it right. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Man, if a man wants to rob God from his glory, God will bring his glory to that man to his swift end. So Herod thought he was in control. He thought he was supreme leader, killing as he will, wills. You know, Herod got what he wanted. He killed James. He imprisoned Peter. He had success. But the end result, verse 24, and, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The gospel of Christ increases. God gets his way, not Herod. And today, God will get his way, not a political administration which is trying to destroy the church. Here, a prominent apostle and leader dies at the beginning. He takes his last breath in ministry, and now a new one, John Marks, takes his first breath in ministry. God, God, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. God will accomplish his plans the way he wants. Now, we ought to volunteer, absolutely. But don't make no mistake. If, if I, you know, I, I had a reminder on, on my phone, uh, before the service, preach Christ, die, be forgotten. I'm not needed. So that's God's perspective then. Let's wrap up here very quickly with his perspective now. So uh, when, I said, when I say finally, that's kind of like in Philippians, uh, Philippians where Paul says finally and then he ends two chapters later. So um, <laughs> because things are the way they are, um, is God even operating in this world? And, and the answer, the resounding answer from Scripture is yes. Yes, God is operating. He has appointed today's Herods, the kings and rulers, and the guards who carry out the will of the ruler. These rulers today are placed there by his wise and holy counsel. Unfortunately, they're doing a lot of damage. And they're enacting policies that attempt to destroy the church. But make no mistake, God is in control of them. He's moving them as chess pieces on a board 
to accomplish his purposes for his glory and our good. So know this, that God is in control. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So our response is lift our voice to God. Cast our eyes Godward. There's my favorite poem, look around and be distressed, look inside and be depressed, but look at Christ and be at rest. That is our response. We often look around and inside, but we have to look at Christ, who offered himself as a sacrifice once for all, has risen, ascended, is seating, seated, and he's ruling at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. So here's the true wrap-up, the actual wrap-up. Just two, two things. I want to ask, whose seed are you of? Are you of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? Are you a Herod and his guard, or are you James and Peter? And it comes down to a simple question of, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe on Christ? Is he your God? We were born seeds of the serpent, each of us. I was born with a wicked sin nature, and you were too. And the only way that I was able to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life is by what Christ accomplished on the cross. When the seed of the serpent's head was crushed by the seed of the woman. That's adoption that we are brought into his family. If you fully and finally reject Jesus, you will call for the rocks to fall upon you because of the wrath of the woman's seed. But if you trust in him, we're told that in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So are you a believer? And how do you know if you're a believer? You look at Christ, you believe on him, which brings repentance. We ought to be every day repenting and believing. And the final admonition here, do you trust God's sovereignty in your death or deliverance? Do you truly believe that your death, say, uh, death day is set? Uh, people have not considered their mortality for a long time until COVID happened. They were oblivious, trying to extend their lives in vain. Although I recommend it, it's in vain in a sense. And suddenly they're like, oh no, I'm going to die. And they're terrified. Can you trust God's plan for your life? When everything goes haywire, you lose your job, your spouse leaves you, your kids are rebellious, your government is actively working to subvert everything that benefits you. Are our eyes Godward, inward, or outward? God is trustworthy. When situations are impossible, and even when it's a time of peace, we must together look to and call upon God in the name of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Back to what Martin Luther said. We should work as if everything depends on us and trust Pray as if everything depends on God, because it does. May, may Christ be exalted um, this morning. May we see him, the seed of the serpent, who crushed the, the seed of the woman who crushed the seed of the serpent, and we in him being victorious, even through death or deliverance. Our lives do not go the way we plan. Man plans, he makes a bunch of plans, but God establishes his steps. So um, may he be blessed in our hearts, in our homes, in the church, in Medina, and in and the world. And let's, uh, if I could uh, pray here, and then we'll sing our last song. Father God, thank you for your word in Acts 12, that you are sovereign over both death 
and deliverance. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God. You are not cruel and maniacal. You are not like many fathers, perhaps some of us have had, who have been evil. Lord, you are not like the rulers in the past and today who try to advance themselves when they're not worthy of glory. Thank you that you are worthy, that you are glorious, and that, Lord, you will receive all the honor and glory through your Son by the Spirit's power by spreading your gospel message. And we thank you in his name. Amen.